0: This is Find It. I'm Erin Essex. It's all gone. Where do you think this road goes? This goes to the
1: golf course, remember? This was here, the whole, this is where all those little old buildings were. All that shit was up here.
0: This past March, my partner Otto and I went back to Grossinger's.
1: big building was right there. All the little like Germany houses were right there and they're all gone.
0: We drove up the hill to the resort only to find a snow covered field. It stretched for a couple hundred yards. All the buildings were gone. It's kind of spooky. Why? It's just nothing, you know? Yeah. Grossingers, once an enormous 1,200 acre resort was one of the 538 resorts that made up an area of the Catskills called the Borscht Belt. It was named after a sour soup that's bright magenta in color due to its beets. Borscht was commonly associated with Eastern European immigrants and became very popular within the Jewish community. The Borscht Belt was the destination for tens of thousands of East Coast Jewish families and later to many other groups. There were hundreds of resorts in the region, but Grossinger's was special. It was known for its fantastic food, sensational stand-up and musical entertainment, but especially for inspiring a highly quotable and iconic
2: 1987
0: film. In this episode, the first of a two-part series, we'll look at the story of Grossinger's beyond what we know from the film, and find the stories of the people shaped by this place. In part two, we'll tell the story of its demise and how it became a popular playground for urban explorers, graffiti artists, and photographers alike. And finally, what is Grossinger's today? Summer fashions on parade beside a swimming pool mark the start of a winter festival weekend at Grossinger's New York. It's important to really understand the history of not only the resort, but the area. For that, I found someone with a personal connection to the region.
2: Hi, my name is Marissa Scheinfeld. I'm a photographer and um, an author, and I currently live in Northern Westchester, but my first book takes place in the Catskills, um, more specifically the Borscht Belt, which was a very large tourism region, predominantly for Jewish Americans from the 1920s to the 1950s. The story of the Borscht Belt is one of lots of wonderful memories lots of communal and social, um, cultural, food-related, comedy-related fun. Historians have said that In this area, there were over 500 hotels and 50,000 bungalows. And I began looking at the history um, about six or seven years ago because I grew up there and ended up making like, you could say a coffee table type photography book or a photographic series on what I found, which were mostly the remains of this
0: tourism era. Now, Marissa's photos of these resorts are just stunning, especially the photos of Grossinger's one of which is on the cover of her book. She's gonna tell you a little bit more about that later. But first, where did Grossinger's begin? And what was it known for?
2: It was a farmhouse that developed into a monster of a hotel. It had its own zip code. It had its own airport. It had an Olympic-sized indoor and outdoor pool. It had um, an outdoor ice skating rink. Um, Their slogan was Grossinger's has everything.
0: And it did, and if it didn't, they would just build it. There's this story of one of the owners overhearing some of the guests in the lobby one day. The women were discussing how much they loved Grossingers, but that they were going to stay at another resort because it had tennis courts. The owner then went over to a busboy that she knew played tennis, and she asked him, what do I need? Well that busboy went on to supervise the building of the first two tennis courts and then later on it grew into a larger indoor complex. But one of the biggest draws of the Catskills and Grossingers was the comedy.
2: Yeah, so I think a big part of the Borscht Belt experience was the comedy and the entertainment element. You have um, really the history of stand-up comedy Can be said to have begun in the Borscht Belt where um, you can drop names like Mel Brooks, Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, um, Henny Youngman, who was uh, his going real back, maybe not as mainstream of a name, but um, many of these comedians kind of honed their skills in the Catskills, told their worst jokes. Um, I heard a story that Mel Brooks got fired from, it wasn't Grossinger's, but it was another hotel in that region for not being funny enough. So it kind of just shows you that they were really like, you know, novices and kind of like
0: early, it was their early part of their career. Comedians' careers were made on the stages of the Catskills. Nearly every Jewish comic of the time performed there sid caesar mickey freeman jackie mason and all of them were influenced by borscht belt humor but to be honest if you're like me some of those names i had to google so here are some others that you might be more familiar with like milton Berle, lucille ball later years jerry seinfeld and the always recognizable gilbert Gottfried. here's a clip from when marissa was on his podcast Gilbert Godfrey's amazing, colossal podcast, telling a story about when he performed at a nearby resort, The Nevely. Yeah,
1: Which Marissa opened cool. the
0: book and showed Gilbert the, what's
1: left of The Nevely show Showroom, oh, and it's, yeah. it's spooky.
0: Because it's like the owners
2: thought I was funny at The Nevely <laughs> and the band. <laughs> and that and I remember after I played The Nevely, and it was, you know, if you just went by the audience reaction, horrible. And, um... I uh, somebody told me they were riding on a subway train, and they heard some old Jewish woman talking about uh, being at the Neville, and saying that some guy up on stage, he's screaming and squinting and 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 he he <laughs> leaned into this old Jewish woman. and goes, "I'm sorry, I couldn't help it over here." He goes, "This comedian you were watching at the Neville was his name Gilbert Gottfried." and the old Jewish woman looks up and she goes, yeah, terrible. What's really cool about the entertainment and comedy aspect of the Borscht belts is that's where I think it crossed over into American popular culture, where many of these comedians graduated to television and movies. And um, that's where if one has no idea about the Borscht belts, I often start by just echoing a name, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. I remember seeing billboards for him before Seinfeld was picked up. And besides the comedy element, you have lots of musicians going up there, so the list can go on and on. But I've heard, you know, Janis Joplin, The Doors, Led Zeppelin, The Who, Jethro Tull, and then you know other other bands that weren't just rock and roll. It had a very big salsa and uh, Latin jazz scene. All of that became such an experience because each hotel would compete with another for the better acts and the better shows. I think entertainment was was the nightlife of the Catskills, of the Borscht Belt, if you will. And the daytime was, you know, full of pools and golfing and skiing and and really whatever you wanted to do. Um, and it, it kind of catered to one's every desire in a way.
0: So not only was Grossinger's a great way to escape the summer heat, this was pre-AC days after all, but it also had thousands of ways to keep one entertained. Tons of activities, food and drink, Kids also had activities, but they were mostly allowed to run around free. Some of the families lived whole summers in the Catskills, and some of those families had fathers that would just come up on the weekends, as hinted at in the Sturdy Dancing Clip.
1: One of the bungalow bunnies. That's what we call the women who stay here all week long. The husbands only come up on weekends.
0: But one of the biggest things at Grossinger's? Dancing. And the one person that had a huge part in shaping that and telling its story, Jackie Horner.
3: Everything centered around the pool, with diving shows, with diving races, uh, swing races. And it was just like party night every night. Every single night was party night.
0: That was Jackie, featured in a 1992 WABC-TV New York news clip. Jackie Horner was the beloved dance instructor at Grossinger's from 1954 till the resort closed in 1986. This job gave her the opportunity to meet tens of thousands of guests, including stars of showbiz and sports. But one guest, Eleanor Bergstein, decades later would go on to write a little screenplay called Dirty Dancing.
3: Fight harder, huh? I don't
1: see you fighting so hard, baby. I don't see you running up to daddy telling him I'm your guy.
0: I will. With my father,
2: it's complicated. I will tell him I... I don't
1: believe you, baby. I don't think that you ever
3: had any intention of telling him, ever.
0: Bergstein took lessons from Horner at Grossinger's and the characters of Dirty Dancing were heavily influenced by Bergstein, Horner, and others that worked at the resort. Like Baby in the movie, Bergstein's family visited the Catskills in the 1960s. And her nickname back then? You guessed it, Baby. Baby. Horner provided the stories of her life working at Grossinger's to Bergstein and the rest is history. Later, when that movie became a reality, Jackie says she cried the first time she saw it, but it was the only time she saw it. She said in a record online interview, I can't take it because I know it. I lived it. I knew every single moment in that movie. They put it in exactly as I said it, exactly as it was written. Nearly every line that I told Eleanor, they put in there. There were some things that went on, more that they didn't put in, There was enough stuff that went on they could have given the movie an R rating. Now, although it's debatable if Baby and Johnny ever found lasting love in the Catskills, many couples did. Marissa shared with me the story of her grandparents during the summer that they spent in a nearby bungalow colony.
2: So going back before I was born, my grandparents met in the Borscht Belt. The story is that my grandmother was hitchhiking between one small town and another probably in the 1940s. So that's how my dad's parents got together. And when he was born and his sister were born, they went up to bungalow colonies every summer. A bungalow can best be described as a small cabin. Um, usually they were on a colony, which is a multi- multitude of bungalows. It could be seven bungalows. It could be 40 bungalows. Um, Usually there was a main house that had a casino um, where people would go out at night. Um, Sometimes they would have a little luncheonette at the bungalow colony. Usually and always there would be a pool. So it would be a place where people could literally rent for a week, often the entire summer Um, and you had that Catskill experience um, in a different way. It wasn't a hotel where you were being served three meals a day, but you had your own space. You had your own kitchen. Usually some of them had shared kitchens and, um, you know, your family and you could go to the pool, you could barbecue, you can see a show on the weekends. And it was like this little kind of little community on a nice plot of land. And there were probably thousands of bungalow colonies, but there were, the number is 50,000 bungalows. So 50,000 little cabins besides the hundreds and hundreds of hotels. My mom's parents also went up there for their honeymoon and also to another bungalow colony. So both sides of my family had this summer connection to the region. And by the time I came around and was born in Brooklyn in 1980, um, my dad was really just looking to get out of the city. Um, Brooklyn was not the cool, awesome place that it is today. And people, instead of flocking to it, I think were running away if they could. Um, So my dad got offered a job up there. And a big part of, I believe, why he took it was because he had great memories of that area as a kid.
0: The Catskills was part of and shaped many families' lives. Grossinger's became one of the most loved resorts in the Catskills and was often mentioned on television. The Dick Van Dyke Show. Starring Dick Van Dyke. Let's see, Australia, Bangkok, and then right on to Hong Kong, all jets. That'll
2: get me in Hong Kong just in time for the Chinese New Year. Gee, imagine being in Hong Kong for Chinese New Year. It must be exciting to make trips like that. I'm planning a long trip next month with Laura.
1: Really? Where are you going? Well, uh, generally, your first leg of the trip will take us to White Plains. And the Mount Kiskol, Peekskill, right at Wurzborough, and that'll get us to a Grossinger's time for Hanukkah.
0: <laughs> I think it's important to understand why Jewish families in particular came to this resort area early on. There was a long period of time where many country clubs and resorts didn't welcome Jewish families due to anti-Semitism. Although this is a serious issue, it sometimes became the subject of at least a few comedians at the time. This is comedian Freddie Roman.
2: It is always a delight to come to the Catskill Mountains, but not in the summertime. Because in the summer, there's an anti-Semite who works for the highway department. Every year on June 30th, he pulls out 300 orange rubber cones. They squeeze the Jews into one lane. They do nothing to the highway. Labor Day, they take the Collins.
0: <laughs> but there's one person that made Grossinger special and memorable. She's mentioned in that 1992 news clip.
1: Selig and Malka Grossinger moved to a Catskills farm in 1914. Unlike other Jewish farmers who'd opened their farms to summertime guests and boarders, the Grossingers were by profession restaurateurs. They really wanted you to have seconds, or at least they made you feel that way. But most of the reason was daughter-in-law, Jenny, who made everybody feel at home, even in the 40s and the 50s when Grossingers would royally entertain 100,000 guests a year. She walked through that hotel and greeted every guest And she knew every guest. And you know what it meant for those people that Jenny Grossinger, the internationally famous lady, greeted them and thanked them.
0: That story I mentioned earlier about the tennis courts? That was Jenny. Always thinking of ways to make guests stay even more enjoyable. Jenny was also the one often attributed as the person that started welcoming other groups outside the Jewish community to the resort. There was just so many stories about her and her impact on Grossinger's, but I wanted to get as close to the source as I could. Lucky enough, I did.
3: Good day, everybody. This is Elaine Grossinger-Eddis. I am the daughter of Jenny and Harry Grossinger, and I was co-owner of Grossinger's. Prior to it being sold, My brother was my, my late brother was my partner. I grew up at, at Grossinger's. I arrived when I was six weeks old, and I lived there until I went to college.
0: Elaine went to college and married her high school sweetheart, David Eddis. He served two years in the Navy as a physician, after which they came back to Liberty, New York, where Grossinger's is. And he set up a practice.
3: And I did the basic things that a doctor's wife was supposed to do at that time. The club the book club girl scout troop etc well after a while that just didn't do it for me i was bored so i went to my brother paul who was general manager at that time and i said i'd like something to do he says great he says you know clara who has been doing our interior design is retiring So why don't you have the responsibility of hiring the designer and supervising the work? I said, gee, that sounds terrific. Well, I got that going, and then I wanted more. Well, somebody else was retiring, the youth activities director. So I took over the responsibility of hiring the director and supervising the programs. And I kept asking for more and getting more done. I spent time with uh, on quite a few convention uh, groups, uh, especially the education ones, because I was president of my local school board in Liberty, New York, for 12 years. And uh, it's kind of interesting to note that my brother and I, my husband, our children all went to the Liberty Central School District it was a wonderful, wonderful place, and had a great time. We all had a great time growing up.
0: Elaine is very active in the hospitality industry, including being the first female president and now chairperson of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Elaine continues to tell me the stories of the people she met during her days at Grossinger's.
3: The hospitality industry is so great, and you have so many wonderful stories, and you meet so many interesting people. Not just celebrities, but the guests, and we've developed friendships that uh, stay till this day. And we sold the hotel in '85, and I still hear from people, or I'll go someplace down here, to go to a restaurant, somebody'll come over and say, "Hi, Missy, do you remember me? I'm Joan. I was served table so, 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 and such and such a guest."
0: Elaine now lives in Florida and is often recognized at JCC events. People share stories about her, about their summers at Grossinger's, fond memories of the resort. But how did this particular resort, out of the hundreds in the Catskills, become so well-known among celebrities?
3: You know, one of the exciting things and interesting things about coming back into the hotel is that it gave me an opportunity to really get to know many of these celebrities. Uh, We would, sometimes they would make their own reservations and come up, other times they would uh, be invited by our PR department. I'm often asked, well, how did Grossinger's become so famous? There were so many other hotels in the area at that time. Well, it goes back to a very interesting story. Milton Blackstone, who was our public relations person at that time, who was a man way ahead of his time. Uh, and he, my mother were having lunch in New York with Monty Proser, who was at the Copacabana, and he was a friend. And a friend of of th- his and Milton's was kind of hanging around. And he was, whatever his name is, which escapes me, Um, he was always a very happy-go-lucky guy. So they said, well, you know, what's wrong? He said, well, I have a very serious dilemma. I have a boxer, he was a promoter, who lives in Chicago. He's orthodox. He wants to leave Chicago to train for his fight, championship fight, He does not want to uh, train in a Stillman's Gin, and the payoff is that he's orthodox and he needs kosher food. Well, all of a sudden, Milton's mind started to click, click, click. You've got an orthodox Jewish boy for kosher food out of New York. What fits better than a training camp at Grossinger's? And that's what happened. We established a training camp for him. And at that time, um, the public was very interested in boxing. It was probably what, at that point, what baseball and football are today. And so all the columnists and the sports writers came up from New York to follow the fight camp. They watched him box, his routine, et cetera, et cetera. And... uh, Then in the evening, they would be at the hotel, they'd be down in the cocktail lounge, or they'd be in the dining room, and this lovely little blonde lady came around and was speaking with them, and that was my mom, Jenny Grossinger. Well, when they got through writing about the fight camp, they then wrote about Jenny. Well, when they got back to New York and filed their stories, they... um, The public just said, you know, this is so interesting. We keep reading about this. Let's us go and see what's happening. And that's how it is. And then it was spread by word of mouth. So that, of course, led to other celebrities coming up. We've had presidents and we've had first ladies. And I'd like to share my two first lady stories with you. It was United Nations Day and Eleanor Roosevelt was coming to give the keynote address at the dinner. Well, my mother decided that prior to that, she should have a little cocktail party in her residence for Mrs. Roosevelt. So she invited a few of her close friends, and I'll drop a few names. Ellen Berlin, the wife of Irving Berlin, who was a dear, dear friend of my mother's. Sylvia Lyons, the wife of the... uh, columnist Leonard Lyons. His column was known as the Lion's Den. It was syndicated. And several other ladies. And she was, uh, my mother was, had a dilemma. She didn't know whether she should call this a tea or a cocktail party. Well, the only difference would be the food. So what she did, she played it safe. And she served coffee and tea and all kinds of Pastries, and then also there were uh, pieces, uh, you know, portions of pickled herring and pickled lox and crackers and bread, etc. And everybody helped themselves to whatever it was they would want. Well, Mrs. Roosevelt absolutely was beside herself from the pickled herring and pickled lox. She was just thrilled. So she asked my mother if she could please buy some, and my mother said no. You can't buy it, but we'll be happy to give you some when you leave. What time are you leaving tomorrow? And she said, well, uh, she told her what time. She says, but I do have a problem because from here I'm going to Tanglewood to narrate Peter and the Wolf. So my mother told her there was no problem. We, she got back to Hyde Park. She should just call and we'd send it over with our chauffeur. And we did, and we did this several times for her. And she wrote a lovely note or called my mom and thanked her, and she said her guests were just thrilled with it. And it's, I find it quite interesting that a immigrant Jewish family was able to provide some food for a former first lady and her friends. And then I had a direct story with, Mamie Eisenhower. There was a college up in Seneca Falls, New York, called Eisenhower College. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and I, when I left work at the hotel Saturday night, I said to our general manager, look, don't call me tomorrow. I've got things I must do at my home. I have clothes I have to take care of, so I don't want any calls. Please, you know, you guys are just, make up all these things just to tease me I said I'm sick and tired of it and I took this big stance okay I start doing my chores and the phone rings and it's our general manager how we burn he said to me you've got to come over to the hotel right away I lived on the grounds, but I had to come over to the main building I said I'm not he said look he says "Mamie Eisenhower is here I said, I'm so sick and tired of all this nonsense. Now, I'm not coming over there. He said, Elaine, I swear to you, your brother's on his way over here now. Mamie Eisenhower really is here. Well, then I realized he was telling me the truth, so I went down, and we were sitting in the dining room having lunch. My brother and Mrs. Eisenhower and me and Howie and we started to chat. And I said to her, Mrs. Eisenhower, what made you stop here for lunch? She said, well, we were coming up Route 17, and I saw your big billboard at the top of the uh, Wordsboro Hill. And I said to my Secret Service detail, I've always heard about this place. That's where we're going to stop and have lunch. So she couldn't have been nicer. And we we finished our lunch, and I said to her, we put a room away for you to rest. Um, I'll escort you up to your room, and then I'll give you my extension, and you can call. Oh, she said, no, 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 I want to go shopping. So I took her shopping in the hotel, the various shops. And then I said, wouldn't you like to rest a little bit? She says, yes, I guess I would. So we went up to the room, and I got ready to leave. And she said, Elaine, please, just stay here and talk with me. And I sat and talked with her like I would my friends or my mother's friends. And uh, she couldn't have been more charming. She left. She sent us, my brother and me, each lovely thank you notes. And shortly thereafter, my mother passed away and she wrote us lovely condolence letters.
0: It's pretty incredible that Elaine and her family met so many well-known people and helped create memorable experiences not only for them but for every guest at the resort. There's one other story about Edie Gourmet and Steve Lawrence that really shows you how much they enjoyed the hospitality business and making someone feel at home.
3: Edie Gourmet came up to perform and my mother was in Florida and we put her in my mother's apartment And she just loved it. And we became very, very close friends. She and I, she and Steve were not married as yet. And as time went on, we would see them. They were working the Steve Allen show. We would socialize when we came to New York and so forth. And um, they were going to get married. Well, they certainly didn't have any much money because they were just starting out. And so um, we said, well, you know, you can spend your honeymoon here. Uh, They said, well, we really wouldn't want to be at the hotel. I said, no, no, we were having coffee in our home. I said, no, and David in my house. They said, oh, that would be wonderful. So my daughter, we had just done her room over. She gave them her bedroom, and she moved up in the guest room. And they spent their honeymoon with us. And then through my connection with the hotel association, I was able to get them a two-day comp reservation at a dude ranch in Downsville, New York. Well, we stayed friends for all these years. In fact, I'm living in Florida now. And last year, uh, Steve was here and I saw him. We always saw them when they performed. And although edie has gone, our friendship's so lasts, And it's it's just wonderful. I'm my time, cause that's the kind of i While other folks grow dizzy I keep busy biding And i would had the opportunity to meet governors and senators and And I've met some very, very interesting guests. In fact, several weeks ago, the JCC here in Boca Raton had a uh, month, the month of February was Catskills Festival, and we we drew people from all over South Florida. And I cannot tell you, I don't know how many, but there were so many people who not only were guests of ours, but who worked for us and worked with us. It was amazing. This couple comes over and I look and they look so familiar. They were my day camp directors. Uh, Someone else had worked in the dining room all through high school and college to earn enough money to go to graduate school. One of my... Fondest memories and fondest people is a gentleman who worked for us during his at the senior year in high school, all through college and part time during grad school. He went to law school, became a lawyer, worked in the DA's office in New York then went back to his home area, which was Poughkeepsie, New York. He was elected district attorney, and then he was nominated and seated on the New York State Supreme Court bench. And he had just retired about two years ago. I hear from him all the time. I see him when I every so often go to uh, New York, He just says that his connections with Grossinger's and the people he worked with was so important to him. And the ability to come back to the same place to work, it was just wonderful. And that's just one of many, many stories. His name was Albert Rosenblatt, Judge Albert Rosenblatt.
0: After the break, Elaine tells me how she feels about the movie Dirty Dancing. She also tells me about one of her more famous guest couples. Eddie Fisher, and Debbie Reynolds. Hint for younger listeners, their first child was Carrie Fisher, you know. Help me,
2: Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope.
0: All that after the break. Hey, it's Erin. I wanted to take a second to personally thank you for checking out this podcast. Find It is a podcast that seeks to tell untold stories of places, ideas, and times past. This first episode is a long one, but I really hope that you're enjoying it so far. And if so, please take a second to give it a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, share with your friends. Text, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram. I really don't care. Just share it. Help me get the word out. Also, your feedback means a lot to me, so if you have suggestions on this episode, topics for future episodes, or just questions, go to finditpodcast.com and send me all of it. Thanks. So it's pretty clear Elaine had a huge part in shaping the resort, especially in later years but I was curious how she felt about these resorts and how they're shown on TV and cinema. If you've seen season two of Marvelous Miss Maisel, they spend much of the season in the Catskills at a fictional resort. But Grossinger's is mentioned a lot.
2: And remember, Moish and Shirley are seeing Duke Ellington and Grossingers Tuesday, so they won't be here for Schnitzel night.
1: Thought I had a line on a gig for you at Grossingers, but it was a bust.
2: But after six weeks up here, tits just start to look like a couple of Grossingers baked Alaskas. They're, uh, oh, you've had them.
0: I also wanted to know if Elaine had seen Marvelous Miss Maisel and Dirty Dancing, and how realistic she feels these fictional portrayals were.
3: Well, I've seen some of the, some of it. I would say Dirty Dancing was probably the most... It was more realistic. And I know that a lot of the things that happened in Dirty Dancing really did happen because Eleanor Bergstein, uh, who wrote the book, and Jackie Horner, who... Um, she was a dance instructor and she was married to... Uh, she married Lou Goldstein, Mr. Simon Says, and uh, I know that those things were true, Mrs. Uh, oh, what's her name? Mar- uh, the 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 big hot one this past you just mentioned. Oh, her. marvelous Miss Maisel. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Um, a lot of the uh, things were true, especially when it came to the clothing for that era, because when I that was quite a while ago, and when I was maybe like. Eleven, twelve years old. My girlfriends and I used to sit on the porch at the dining room on Saturday night because we, at that period, the dining rooms was not part of the main building, and there was this huge staircase going up, and the ladies would arrive in their gowns and their gloves and their hats, and it was absolutely elegant, and it was a big, big deal. I mean, clothes were an important part of women's going to Grossinger's streamer trunks used to arrive. People would have trucks with tarps on them covering the racks would come with the women's clothing. So there was a lot of truth and of course a lot of it was fiction. There was fact and there was fiction.
0: Okay getting back to nonfiction, the story of Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds can be said to have started at Grossinger's or at least their marriage did. Elaine explains.
3: And, of course, we didn't talk about one very important thing, and that was Eddie Fisher's marriage to Debbie Reynolds in my home and his return with Miss Taylor. Eddie Fisher was from Philadelphia, and Milton Blackstone received a call from Monty Prozer at the Copacabana. He says, Milton, you've got to do me a favor. I brought this young singer up from Philadelphia And he's not old enough to conform to the cabaret age limit laws in New York City, which are different than the state. So Milton said, okay, send him up and he can sing with the band. And he was a band singer, lived in the staff quarters and so forth. Eddie Cantor was visiting and uh, he heard him sing. And he offered him a job uh, touring with him. He had a Coca Cola show that he was taking, a radio show. I don't know if it was radio or television. I, I must have been television. And uh, took him along. And then he met Debbie. They had a romance, and they decided they would be married. And she thought it would be lovely if they got married at the hotel since that's where he was discovered. So we were supposed to have the wedding in my mother's home. When we sat down to figure out the logistics, although it was a small wedding, there were too many people for her house because she had all her furniture in there. We had just come back from two years in the Navy, and my dad had built us a house on the grounds, and it was all carpeted downstairs, but there was no furniture And so it just worked out beautifully. So anyway, uh, they arrive, and Debbie calls me the next morning. The morning of the wedding, which was Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, she said she's got her gown from Bundle of Joy, but she left her shoes home. Well, size 5 white satin shoes don't come easily in Liberty, New York. So... (laughs) My husband had a friend who owned the shoe store in town, and most of the merchants in the village closed on um, Jewish holidays, even if they weren't Jewish, because so many of the clientele from the hotels and local people, you know, will shop on that holiday. So my husband had to go up about 20 miles into the woods at this hunting camp where he knew that his friend had gone for the day, no cell phones, no landlines, and he, they had to go and get the shoes. From He had to come into the village, open his store, get us the white satin shoes. The wedding was lovely, but just before the wedding, my daughter, who was the only child invited to the wedding, came downstairs and she said to me, Mommy, go look outside, there's a whole group of people. Well there was a group that looked like an army of for reporters and photographers and what we had forgotten nobody remembered was that they only permit one reporter and one photographer or they I don't know if it's the same now but that that time uh to cover an event that's that you know it, as important as it was it was you know the number of people so the first thing we did was call the hotel and tell them to send over Food and drink, and so forth, and we had a downstairs a playroom for the kids, so we had some porters come over and we fed them all the photographers and everything and um they got married. My mother is very was and very fond of debbie she they had two children, Carrie and Todd, and my mother had a photo of Debbie and the two kids on her dresser. Till the day she died and she was very friendly with Debbie even after they got divorced well the Todd Mike Todd and Elizabeth Taylor were married and they were very friendly with the Fishers Eddie and Debbie and when uh, Mike had his untimely death Eddie went to be with Elizabeth and Debbie stayed home and took care of the children well we all know what happened and they got divorced, and then Eddie brought Elizabeth to the hotel. My mother was in Florida at that time, so she uh they used the uh, we well, used her apartment again, and they stayed there. She dedicated our um, indoor swimming pool gracious sweet charming lovely several weeks later, Eddie was appearing at the um Waldorf story and my husband and I had called and made reservations for the show under the name Eddis. We did not make it under Grossinger. And we had a lovely ringside table, and before the show started, the captain comes over and hands my husband a note, and says, Dear Dr. and Mrs. Edis, please join us for a drink at such-and-such such a suite after the show. Fondly, Elizabeth. Then, of course, my mother became friendly with her also. <laughs> Not to the extent with, with uh, you know, that Debbie, because first of all, there were more years.
0: Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher were married in 1959, Taylor even converting to Judaism. It was also around this time that the resort started trying to attract other groups of vacationers. By the 1960s, Grossinger's was open to people of all backgrounds. But the slowdown was palpable. But Elaine and her brother Paul worked to be... But Elena, her brother Paul, worked to be more creative to attract new business.
3: And people didn't stop coming completely, but they stopped coming as frequently. And, you know, we what we decided and I'm sure the other people did too, we decided we had to start going to the convention business which we had never done. And um, we had to attract other ethnic groups. And so we had a really heavy heavy session and we decided that we would go after the Italian market because there was a great similarity between Italian families and Jewish families and the food and so forth and so on and we had we ran our first Italian weekend with great uh, help from the Italian government travel office from um, Al Italia from Batoia Hotels Frank Giambelli, who was a restaurateur in New York, came up and worked with our chefs to take recipes, some of their recipes, and convert them to kosher. And we had Italian entertainment, and it was such a success that people wanted came up to the desk before they left and wanted to know when they were going to. They wanted to make reservations for the next one. I believe we must have had about eight or ten Italian weekends, and then we had an Israeli weekend. We had a lot of thematic weekends. One of the that was more a lot of fun was our chocolate weekend, and we sprayed the lobby, the reception lobby, with chocolate spray, you know, like a, deodor- a deodorizing spray, and people walked in and they immediately were hit with the odors of the wonderful aromas, I should say, of uh, the chocolate. And we, we had, uh, with Chocolate Weekend, my son, who had gone to a grad school at Cornell Hospitality, uh, had a friend who was uh, in some position, it must have been some marketing position, in uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, and he let us borrow this huge, Chocolate kiss Hershey kiss I mean he was grown up it was a person size, and we had ice shows every Saturday afternoon. Uh, Irving Jaffe, who was an Olympic skater, uh, was our activities our winter sports activities director, and he would get contestants who were training for the Olympics, and they were not allowed to be paid, but we what we would do is we, they would come up, and they would do a show for us, and then we would give them ice time instead of cash, and that was permissible. So uh, part of the show, we had one our skating professionals. We had three full-time skating professionals, and uh, they would give lessons, and one of them would, was dressed that day with, in the Hershey Kiss, costume. And when she came out in that, just you could hear the roaring down the road. People just were so excited about it. And every Saturday, Irving Jaffe would get dressed up in this fox costume, and we'd pin $5 bills and $1 bills on him. And the kids in the audience would go out and skate and try to pull the money off, and whatever money they retrieved belonged to them. So that was a, a highlight, and we really catered to the children. Also, we had preteen and teen, and and of course it was kind of easy for me since I had three children, and my son Mitchell uh, was the youngest. And so I believed in direct mail to the children because when they get mail, they're going to bother their parents about it. And so Mitchell would write to them. I had a, created a mailing list when they registered, and uh, there were all kinds of activities for the kids. So it, it was really uh, it was an all-inclusive family situation. Then, of course, we had the singles weekend's. It was, you know, a boy meets girl, and it was a comfortable, comfortable kind of situation because if you didn't meet a fellow, it wasn't so devastating because you'd always find a group of gals sitting down in the cocktail lounge talking, listening to the music. The same for the guys. One singles weekend, we had what we call um, a datagram and it was we printed it on yellow paper it looked like an old new probably some of our audience is not going to even relate to it but the old yellow western union telegrams and if somebody met and wanted to meet somebody or make a date they would you know fill it out and they found out the name and whatever and we would have them delivered to the rooms and it was just another activity and another Kind of interesting way of boy me girl.
0: Certainly, Elaine and the rest of the Grossinger staff worked really hard to keep Grossinger's updated and fun. Harold Lieberman was someone that I met in a Grossinger's Facebook fan group. He has such fond memories of growing up at the resort in the early 80s. I went to Grossinger's for um, Christmas
1: New Year's in, at the end of 1980, 1981, and 1982, and for the Passover holiday in. 1981, 1982, and 1983. It was a very enjoyable experience for me every time. I went with my parents and my two brothers, two sisters. It was was just an amazing place. There was all these great activities to do there, and also the cuisine there was really delicious and Mm -hmm. plentiful. In 1980, I stayed in the Janney G building, and we stayed definitively in the Paul G building. We actually had a suite in the Paul G building, in, which was really nice, because I guess for five kids in a row, it was very nice in the, the activities. Uh, I usually went to the Concord Hotel prior to that, and in subsequent years, and a friend of mine from my class actually suggested row singers, and we went, and I learned to ski there, and we enjoyed swimming in the most gorgeous uh, pool, there. So What we enjoyed the most was just exploring through all the grounds and the huge complex of the hotel. It's this huge, tremendous complex.
0: Harold told me about the various antics he got into at Grossinger's and how passionate he was about the Jenny G building. In case it's not clear, that building was named after Elaine's mother. In part two of this episode, you'll hear how passionately he feels about this building. But I was curious about his experiences in the beautiful indoor pool building. Maybe I didn't
1: appreciate the architecture as much as we do today. Now that we're older, um, as I said, I was a kid about 12 years old. It just the pool was, i just remember it being very nice. That the water was warm. I was getting more into swimming. Then, like I was able to swim much better. I remember what, what we used to do is we would. Um, like put on goggles and then try to sink in the water so we could wave through the window into, from the pool into the, the room where everyone played ping pong. Which was to have a, a window looking into the pool was just, I mean, it was tremendous. It was like really, really nice, and it was just very unique about row singers I remember just, I remember swimming in the pool, playing with, uh, having like a catch with a friend of mine with a, with a ping pong ball there. I remember going skiing one day and being, you know, after the skiing and just jumping in the pool and going swimming and being like, wow, I could do both of both of these within a half hour of each other. I remember playing miniature golf, like meeting a friend of mine from camp. Yeah, one thing about grossing also I met friends that I went to summer camp with from, from my school, from my uh, community in Great Neck, New York, where I grew up. I met all kinds of friends there, which was really cool, too. Back, back, back about the pool, I remember, I just remember the pool being... This, this like it was just this huge beautiful room, and it was, and and like you could walk from from like one section of the hotel like, so I walked over that when it was safe to walk th- through that, and and it was like it, was, it had like a walled off walkway, and you could see people. I remember my dad once walking through there as I was like trying to like lift weights they had like this weight lifting thing um in that whole complex of in in that indoor pool building like like i guess 10 yards away from the pool on the side so i was like lifting weights my dad was walking down the hallway from one, uh, the pool g building to the main part of the hotel and i just remember the pool like just playing you know trying to sink into weights of people through the window i remember seeing people through the window i remember in the, in the in the center of the deep end about probably about three to four feet down and it was probably about um maybe about six, seven feet by, by six six or seven feet. It was, it was just a very nice feature. I remember seeing people through the window. I remember maybe I did something with a little lack of discretion. Once I jumped down, when I sank to the window there, I may have done something I shouldn't have done. What am I going to tell you? People do funny, funny things when they're young, right? You know, I maybe I just, I didn't appreciate the architectural beauty of it, but I remember it was just this beautiful, this beautiful, large building that served many purposes. And I just remember, especially the, like the locker room, and the steam room, the sauna, every, everything that they had. I remember looking through mirrors there to see if I was like, um, you know, I was, I guess, getting to be 14 years old. So I, I wanted to see if I was, let's say, physically maturing a little bit. I remember seeing people get massages at, at one end. It was it was all just curious to me. It was just as a kid, take, taking an adventure, going through the whole hotel was a tremendous Experience. I used to look forward to it all all year long to go there. As I said, like as a kid, just exploring this whole thing, you know, like a friend of mine said it the best, what was enjoyable the the most. And I I feel the same way as, and most memorable to me, was just exploring everything running through here, here as a kid, where it was all safe. So you go wandering wherever you wanted a 12 year old kid into this like city of different, you know, sections of, of this vast hotel that'll look different.
0: Harold's experiences in the early eighties created really fond memories and made a profound impact on him as a kid. Although Marissa spent most of her youth at the Concord, a nearby resort, she tells me of times in the nineties, after Grossingers had already closed. It gives you a sense of what things were like back then. So my parents moved up to the Borscht Belt
2: when I was a kid and, um, you know, moving into my teenage years, I was looking for a summer job. So one of my first jobs was as a lifeguard at the Concord. And this was in 95 and 96 and the hotel closed in the fall of 96. So um, that was one of my first experiences of like, you know, being fired, you know, not because I wasn't performing correctly and doing my job right, but because the hotel closed and, even as a teenager, it was obvious that you know I was losing my summer job, but people were losing their full-time livelihoods of the way that they made a living. So um, the Concord was a big part of not only my teenage years, but um, I also went to Kutcher's as a kid because my grandparents owned a condo there. So between those two hotels, I'd say those were the predominant ones that I. Went to as a kid, never as a guest, um, but because my grandparents have this connection there, um, we would go. And I, I guess because the hotels were not nearly as busy as they were in the 50s and 60s, this is mid 80s, 90s, we were able to hang out without anyone asking us to leave. You know, I've heard stories of people sneaking in under gates you know not today to to mm-hmm. explore but in the 50s and 60s because the entertainment was so great and the nightlife was so awesome that they had to like it was like a club you know they're only going to let a certain amount of people in so um these were like the the hot spot if you think of you know the the biggest vacation spot or the hottest clubs or you know the places where celebrities go like this is what the borscht belt really was it was the place to be so the concord was really a name. And then the other place that was a tremendous name was Grossinger's, um, which graces the cover of my book. Um, and I think, you know, when I was photographing it, it was amongst the largest of structures that remained. It was, well, today it's completely demolished and they've been taking it down the past four or five months. But when I was photographing it, it was easily, you know eight or nine buildings. There used to be many, many more over the years they have come down. But in the sense of exploring an actual physical, what felt like a hotel, um, that was it. Where you had like lobbies and showrooms and tennis courts and pools and coffee shops. And you really walk in and you feel like you're in a space.
0: As Marissa mentioned, this is the time when the area began its big decline. And it quickly succumbed to nature and vandals. I explored the grounds of Grossinger's in the winter of 2016. I made a video showing its beauty and longing to feel what it was like to be there. I got the most amazing and beautiful comments because of that video. These were the comments that actually led me to pursue this podcast. Here are at least a couple. This is from user Chato Morgan. We used to go up to Grossinger's with our grandparents at least twice a year. Grandparents went more often. I must have gone on at least a dozen trips while growing up on Long Island. I enjoyed the ride there as well as the stay. Funny, of all the times that we were there and all that we did, there's one thing that always sticks out for me and that was their peach soup. The first time we dined there, my sister heard me read aloud to her the menu and she shouted, peach soup, I want that. She was four. If I recall, they also had strawberry, but I'm not certain. We enjoyed it because it was like having a milkshake in a soup bowl. It wasn't much, mind you, but it was something we never had anywhere else. It was explained to us by our grandmother that it was used as a palate cleanser between courses. We didn't care. It was a mid-meal dessert. This is from user Soloho. Grossingers always had the best reputation, and I thought about switching jobs when I worked for the Nevely as an athletic director in 1964, but I moved on to a more serious direction in my life. Videos like this are very sobering to those of us who experienced the glory days. It happened to Grossinger's, the Nevely, and the Concorde. It happened to Rome, and it's happening to America right now. Get used to it. So how did this amazing place come to an end?
1: Trips to Europe, that's what the kids want.
0: In the next episode, the decline of Grossinger's. But depending on who you ask, maybe it still had its beauty, just in a very different way. Thanks to all the people who helped me make this first episode of Find It. Thanks to Marissa Scheinfeld. You can see her work at borschtbeltbook.com and you can order your own book. Also, she has a traveling exhibition of 35 large-scale photos from the book that will be on display at the Albany State Museum from spring to fall 2020. Thanks to Harold Lieberman, your candid recollections of being a kid at Grossinger's. I mean, I just felt that if I had a window in the pool when I was growing up, I might have done some silly things in front of it too. Thanks to Elaine Grossinger-Eddis. I so appreciate your time and the stories. It just really helps make this podcast whole. You can hear all these interviews uncut on the Find It website, finditpodcast.com. I also have a list of references there and videos for you to explore. One more shout out to my partner, Jay Otto. Thank you so much for your support and thoughtful ideation on this episode and more. All right, part two is ready right now. So go ahead and binge that. Thanks.